Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 46 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, it's a great privilege to welcome as my guest, Robert McKee. For more than 30 years, he's been the most famous screenwriting guru in the world. His story seminar runs twice yearly in Los Angeles, New York, and London, and once a year in many other major cities. His book, entitled Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting, is widely regarded as the screenwriter's bible, and he also maintains a blog and writer's resource website called Storylog, on which he offers many tips as well as his views about new releases. Before McKee came on the scene, there were, of course, other people who wrote and taught about screenwriting, most famously the late Sid Field. And since McKee rose to prominence, there have been many others who have tried to follow in his footsteps. But none have been as successful or become as famous. And certainly none have been portrayed in a major motion picture, as McKee famously was, by Brian Cox in the 2002 film Adaptation. Whether you're familiar with McKee's work or you're not, whether you believe in his methods or you don't, whether you like him or hate him, there's no denying that he's an interesting guy with a lot to say. That's why his book is such a big seller. It's why hundreds of people pay upwards of $500 to hear him speak every time he offers one of his seminars. And it's why it was a great treat to sit down with him in Los Angeles this week to pick his brain and get to know him and his views a little better. Let's go to that conversation. Mr. McKee, thank you so much for doing this, especially as you head into one of your seminars. I know it's a marathon, so I appreciate it. I guess to begin with, what's your mindset as one of these is about to get underway? Do you get excited or, you know, antsy? Put us in your mind. No, I... I... (laughs) I overcame stage fright, uh, I don't decades ago. Yeah. Right? Uh, no, I don't get antsy, certainly not. Uh, I get focused. That's it. I mean, I just, uh, I know that there's an immense amount of material. And, uh, uh, you know, I will lecture from 9 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night. And these poor people, <laughs> right, three days in a row. Right. And the sessions go virtually two hours at a time. And there's five of them in a day and there's three days of this I mean it and sooner or later their heads are just so full so my focus is clarity I think clarity is the highest uh, virtue of teaching mm-hmm. and it I mean having something to say to begin with of yep. course but then to, to be able to say it clearly so that Come Monday, the people who have taken my lectures have an understanding that will be a good foundation for them to improvise and play with and develop uh, their writing in the future. But if they're sitting there on Monday morning going, what the hell did he mean by that? <laughs> that's a problem. That's a problem. So I focus on being sharp and clear. So, obviously, I'm going to ask you a lot about the seminar, but before I do that, I want to go back just to the beginning and ask you, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living I was born and raised in Detroit Michigan um, my father was an engineer for General Motors my mother eventually became a real estate broker uh, so we were you know middle class mm-hmm. middle class and uh, I must you know back in the 50s when right, I was living in Detroit before I went off to the university I must say Detroit was a wonderful city to live in. Mm -hmm. It was the richest city in America. Mm -hmm. The automobile industry had made it a fabulously wealthy place. And they had built a great museum. The Detroit Museum was fantastic. And I used to get on a bus when I was 11, 12 years old, up on 14 mile, 15 mile, and Woodward Avenue, and take a bus down to the heart of Detroit and spend an entire Saturday wandering the galleries of the museum and those great Diego Rivera murals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Across the street was the magnificent downtown library, and I would spend hours in there just going through the stacks, pulling things off and reading. And then right down the street was the Fox Theater, one of those fantastic movie palaces. Mm -hmm. And I'd watch, you know, serials and cartoons and a feature film for kids. And that, that Saturday was the richest thing imaginable and so Detroit was a great place to grow up. Was your talent for reading and writing apparent at a very early age, or when did that become the case? Well, I was always acting. I was in the third grade play, and I had the lead in the third mm-hmm. grade play, right? Uh, and high school plays and community theater plays. 
and and then I would direct or stage uh, things for the school, for pep rallies and so forth. And so I was directing as well. And uh, then I went off to the university, presumably to be a dentist. This is the University of Michigan. Yeah, University of Michigan. And I, I told him I wanted to be a dentist for my scholarship because I had sussed out the dentists spend more time on the golf course than any other profession. <laughs> and that was my ambition, was to maximize my time on the golf course. But then they sat me down the first you know, when I arrived, and a counselor took me through what is pre-dent. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that. <laughs> I said, no, I'm going to be a lawyer. Right, right. right. And I had this sort of Clarence Darrell notion. And then um, then in my sophomore year, my scholarship people came to me, and they said, your grades are fine, they're all fine, but we want well-rounded um, people, and so you have to have an extracurricular activity. And I looked around at choices and I said, how about if I do a play? And they said, fine. So I had the only non-singing, non-dancing, non-comic role in a musical comedy <laughs> called Bells Are Ringing. Okay. And I'm sure I was very bad. But as I stepped out onto the stage of the Lydia Mendelssohn Theater with a thousand people, I bet you I could find the board on the stage floor that I was standing on mm -hmm. when the thought went through my head, who are you kidding? <laughs> De, you know, lawyer, dentist. Right, right. This is what you want. And I never looked back. Wow. So you get your undergraduate degree, you decide you're going to get a master's degree, and then you decide you're going to go to New York. And for seven years, we're focused on doing what there? Acting, directing. I did a lot of repertory theater. Not always in New York, but I mean, I did a lot of summer stock. I did as an actor. I did. I acted in over sixty plays. I was in the the APA repertory company, traveling around the country, and as a director, especially in summer stock and uh, resident theater, community theater, I directed over sixty plays wow. as well. And so, by the time I was thirty-one or two, I'd already been either acting or directing or both, you know, 100 and, I don't know, 50, 60. It was a lot. And it's interesting, though, that you say acting, you say directing, but you don't say writing. No. No, because I had tried to write. In my master's degree, I took playwriting, and the, the great Kenneth Rowe, Professor Kenneth Rowe, was the teacher. Mm -hmm. And his students were legendary. Everybody from Arthur Miller... Uh, ultimately, Larry Kasdan and great writers in between. And so I tried to write for, for Professor Rowe. And, but, and I had been directing and acting and a lot. And when I read my own writing, I thought, this is the work of a really immature person. Wow. You know? You could be that self -critical. Yeah, I mean, it was clear. <laughs> I thought, but there's nothing I can do about it because I am immature. Right. And so I just didn't, I gave it up. And, uh, and I was busy, God knows, working and um, in the theater. And then uh, I decided to, uh, in a sort of suicidal impulse, to move my career from stage to screen. And I, I came out here to, um, to Hollywood. And I, I knew I would have to, if I was going to direct film, I would have to write my way into it. Now, in between that, because if I have the chronology right, you had those seven years in New York. Then you thought about going back to University of Michigan yeah. for PhD. So it was actually in the course of doing your thesis for that that you came upon this interest or obsession or whatever you might call it in story structure, right? Yeah, I had to do a, a dissertation. My first choice was to do a dissertation on the war genre because I had figured out this great iconography of war movies and that from the silence through to when I was in school in the 60s, 70s, um, there'd been a declension where war movies were about officers. Then, as we headed toward World War II, it became movies about, about sergeants, non-coms. Then as we got to Korea, it was about privates. Then we got to the brig, the Dirty Dozen and so forth. 
And I thought, this is really interesting that we're going down to the brig, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it suggested to me that the attitude toward war in the public was changing. And the, the, the strategy of wars was such that in the beginning of films, there were clear battle lines. The enemy was over there, we were here. And then, um, as you got toward Korea War, the, the uh, image was we're surrounded, which I'm sure was a metaphor for communism. Right? And then it was behind enemy lines. And so I saw this pattern of the geography changing and the, and the status of changing, and that, uh, that was really interesting. And then I thought, now I'm going to have to look <laughs> at I don't know how many hundreds of war movies <laughs> to document all this. And I couldn't face it. Okay. So then I thought, why don't I do something useful? I want to be a writer. I want to go to Hollywood. I want to direct. I had made short films. I'd won a lot of awards. Why don't I... And, and the, the dissertation, the PhD, was a backup in case everything failed. I could feed my family right. by teaching. Okay. So that was the strategy. So then I thought, why don't I do a dissertation that I will learn from? And so I decided to do a dissertation on on story structure in film. And this topic is so huge that my faculty advisor said <laughs> that this will take you forever. And, and ultimately, only you and 12 people will know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, I don't care. I don't right. care. And so I buried myself. My bibliography was over 300 titles. And I buried myself literally in an attic at one point for three years. And then I started to do the dissertation. I got a chapter. And I was and I had a job at San Diego State teaching film there. While you're doing the... While I was doing yeah. it. And I, I met a, a, a guy who said, let's partner on a screenplay and get the hell out of San Diego and up to Hollywood. And I said, great idea. And so we wrote a screenplay and we optioned it. And for somebody who's listening to this who's not in the industry, can you explain what it means to have your script optioned? Yeah, we sent it to ICM. And, I, and uh, the agent was Jack Gillardi. Yeah. And, um, and his assistant read it and recommended it uh, to Gillardi. And Gillardi then represented it to a production company and they paid us, I don't know what it was, $5,000. Uh, but they, they optioned it, which means that they, they paid a piece of money. Let's say the screenplay in those days probably was like $150,000. Mm-hmm. And they give you, I mean, 3%, mm-hmm. like $5,000. To have the rights for one year to take your screenplay and go try to raise the money, raise the investment. And so if they don't, you get to keep the five grand. And they didn't, and I did. That's what an option is. It's a piece of money that they pay you to control your property, your script. Uh, we use these real estate terms, property, mm-hmm. to control your script for a year while they go out and uh, try to raise money. And then they may renew it for another piece of money for a second year if they're near getting the money, something like yeah. that. Those are options. And so what ended up becoming of that script? It never got made. And um, in fact, over the years... I had 20 either options mm-hmm. or outright paid to write uh, originals for Warner Brothers, for Fox, and I made a lot of money on screenplays that never got made. And you were, in the meantime, paying the bills with some episodic TV and stuff at that yeah, time? Yeah, I wrote a lot of episodic. I wrote a lot of crime stories. I wrote uh, the miniseries uh, Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was the pilot for the Bible miniseries. Mm-hmm. And it was nice. I mean, it was Joseph Sargent directed it, yeah. Emmy Award winner. Richard Harris, Barbara Hershey, Maximilian Schell, sure. Victoria Gossman, a wonderful cast. And so that was a pleasure because I always liked writing for TV because I knew it would get made. Mm-hmm. But when you write for the big screen, the odds are literally 20, 25, 30 to 1. And how much has it graded on you, as I imagine it would on anybody, to have so many come close in that sense, but maybe not go as far as you'd hoped? You know, it, it didn't grate on me. It really didn't, because I had plenty of 
knew plenty of people, a lot of writers, and we'd sit around, you know, moping, but it was normal. The Writers Guild did a study back then that said it literally 20 to 1, that for every 20 screenplays that option money or paid outright, right, a script for hire, for every 20 screenplays where money is paid to a writer, only one gets made. It's crazy. What other profession has odds like that? Well, whatever profession lets you sell something and keep it. Right, right. Um, I sold one screenplay, I've optioned rather, one screenplay, it's called Madness, five times. <laughs> so that People love it, yeah, and they keep optioning it, and it never gets made, never gets made, never gets made. I could have just kept doing that. I, there was no reason why I didn't uh, or couldn't have, because I was making a nice living writing. Mm-hmm. But what happened was in the midst of all this, I got a phone call from a, a new uh, school for filmmaking called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. And the, the, the deal was that only professionals who do it would teach it. And this school was wildly successful briefly <laughs> when Dustin Hoffman was teaching acting, Sidney Pollack was teaching directing. And so people were there in droves. And they wanted me to do a Saturday morning class of some kind for writers. And so I put together some lectures and whatnot, and eight Saturday mornings in a row, nine to 12. Uh, I did this, these, these workshops and lectures and whatnot, and it was fun. Got to you know meet writers and mm-hmm. talk shop. And then a few weeks later, I get another phone call. Would you do it again? And I came back. I said, sure, because it was fun. So I came back, and I'll do it better this time, I thought. And what had been 20, 25 people was now like 60 people. And then they called me a third time, and they had rented an auditorium, and it was packed. (laughs) And uh, I realized by word of mouth that apparently what I thought was common knowledge, to me it was common Mm -hmm. knowledge, was really missing in the education of people who wanted to write. That nobody at the university had ever taken them through the simple inner life of a story and the dynamics of character and dimensionality of character. And so, I mean, nobody had ever taught them these sort of, I thought, very fundamental things. And they were slack-jawed. <laughs> um, and then I got a call from uh, women in film in New York. And they said, could you bring your class to New York? And I said, well, I can't go to New York for two months on Saturday mornings. And, they, and, this, and this gal said, well, you think you could do it for a weekend? Get it all done in a weekend? And I thought, can anybody talk that long? <laughs> I said, I'll try. Right. So I flew out to New York on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the rest was history. It right. just took over my life. Did it end up going to USC as well at some point? Is that did you No, teach? that was based on classes that I had given at USC. Ah, uh, okay. I was on their faculty briefly and uh, for a couple, three years, and uh, not full-time, just part-time to supplement my writing income. Mm-hmm. And I had worked with another professor there named Margaret Merring, uh, creating the Filmic Writing Program. So the, the, my lectures at uh, Sherwood Oaks was... Um, based upon classes that I'd given at San Diego State gotcha. University, at the University of Michigan, at, at uh, USC. So I put a little tiny ad, I mean a little one-inch square ad in the LA Times and the phone wouldn't stop. And so the demand was such, and then uh, that I started doing this on regular weekends, and then a gentleman from Italy came out from International Forum asking me to bring my classes to Europe. And I found out that as much as I love to write, that writing about writing, lecturing on writing, was far more satisfying for me. Why do you think that is? Well, for one thing, when I lecture, I get to perform. And I spent a lot of my life on stage acting. And I get 
two, three, four hundred people packed into a room, and it's and there's a lot of comedies, a lot of jokes, and I love getting laughs, and I love the feedback. And when I'm lecturing, you know, I talk right into the. I pick individuals out, left, right, center. And I, I talk directly to that particular person, and then I move on to another mm-hmm. person. And the effect, apparently, is that everybody sitting there, all 300 of them, think that I'm talking personally to right. them, right? And when I, as I said, when I get that sense of intensity, their absorption, and then the explosion of laughter or whatever, I just love it. I mean, that, who can fault that? And then I, I, I was accumulating material for a book. And I, I was approached by many, many publishers over the years, and I kept putting them off because I felt that I'm not ready to write the book until I've heard every conceivable question from a writer. Hmm. And at a certain point, the questions became repetitious, and there were nothing. And I thought, okay, because I, I have to answer those questions. Right. And that means I had to do more research, go back, and, you know, and then work that into the lecture somehow so that the lecture contains the answers to questions that haven't been asked yet. Mm-hmm. And then I was ready to write the book. And I found that writing story mm-hmm. Great book. was so satisfying yeah. that this is really how my mind works. That writing about writing is more compelling to me than writing story. And I can write story. I mean, I've you know, seen enough of my stuff on the screen to think, you know, when I was an Ingmar Bergman, but I was, a, you know, <laughs> I was presentable. Right, right. Right? I was professional. But I knew, in fact, I knew I was an Ingmar Bergman. And I could see, once again, you know, like when I was a kid, I read my own writing, I thought, God, this is immature. When I looked at my writing in, um, in cop shows and whatnot, and Abraham even, I thought, you know, this is competent, this is solid, there's some very nice moments here. It's not Ingmar Bergman. So let me ask you, because you have your set of rules that you have arrived at through your experience, as you say, teaching the class, you know, figuring out how to answer these questions. We do not use the word rules. Not rules, excuse me. <laughs> we use the word principles. Principles. There's a, there's a universe of difference between the two. I, I, I stand corrected. But what is the response, as you know, having such strong viewpoints, and now you also review new releases on your blog sometimes invites people to become a little defensive about their work. And and I'll just cite one sort of representative comment or response, if I may, where I believe it was on Twitter where a filmmaker whose recent work had been quote-unquote successful in the marketplace was deemed not working, in your view. And this person or defender of this person says, quote, it's so weird that Robert McKee knows all the secrets to writing a perfect screenplay, but has chosen not to, close quote. I'm sure you hear smart-ass stuff like that all yeah, the time. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's it, you know, the, the word is um, specious. Yeah. That statement, statements like it, are simply illogical. Aristotle never wrote a play. Aristotle, to my knowledge, never even attempted a piece of fiction. And yet, his insights into plays and into literature and Homer uh, were by far the most profound for the 2,000 or more years that followed. And so it's a specious thing to say that uh, somebody who knows a lot about writing and can explain it clearly should also be able to uh, write it as well. Because what this uh, person has misunderstood, of course, is that there's a component of all of this called talent. And I judged my talent harshly, but I judged it accurately, I'm sure, as mediocre. I was a good writer of fiction, but not great. And it was not, as I said, Ingmar Bergman, and I wanted to be the Ingmar Bergman of something. And I found that I can write about writing as well as it's been written about, and uh, that that is my gift, that is my talent, and why not pursue that, as I did, with great satisfaction. And so fools who say, you know, well, if he's so good, why isn't he famous for being a fiction writer, don't understand writing, and certainly don't understand my career, 
But I've heard that many times, and people make that categorical, logical error, and I forgive them because they're ignorant. <laughs> well, now, coming back to the idea that when you're lecturing, that it's a form of acting, is there any daylight between the Robert McKee that we see at the front of a seminar and the Robert McKee who will be in this room when we leave it? Is it a character? <laughs> it's not a character, but it's, it's, um, it's the best version of me. You know, this, and this is true for anyone, I think, when you're writing, any writer. When you're at the keyboard writing, or in my case, either writing or lecturing, mm -hmm. when you're doing your thing, the best person you can be comes alive. The smartest person, the most sensitive person, the wittiest person, the whatever, the best version of yourself comes alive while your fingers are on the keys, while I'm pacing the stage. Then I go back to being the asshole I really am. <laughs> Let me ask you this. You know, there's now, and I think probably most of these are copycats of you, but there are a lot of writing hmm. courses, lectures out there. What is it that makes yours the one that they should go to, the one that's the best? I don't know these other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hear about them. Mm -hmm. And my attitude toward it is the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want misinformation being taught, but there's nothing I can do about that. But the more the merrier in the sense that uh, helping every people who are coming into this business, well, there's two kinds of people. There's pros who've been in here a lot and worked a long time, and people just coming in. The people who are just coming in need to understand that it's a combination of imagination, talent, instinct, and craft. And if they rely simply on their instincts, if they believe that this is some kind of magic takes place, they're not only naive, they're just never going to write anything of quality. Because writing, as the famous saying goes, is rewriting. And when you read between the writing and the rewriting is an analysis that the writer performs about their own work, saying, why doesn't this work? What can I do to make it better? And the ability to analyze and understand what they've done in the first draft is, is, is a byproduct of their knowledge of the craft that then guides them to go back in their imagination and do a second draft, which is hopefully better. Mm -hmm. Okay, But in between the first draft and the second draft is an analysis based upon knowledge, not instincts. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's instincts are involved, but you, you, you know, your instincts tell you it doesn't work, but your craft tells you, okay, how to fix it. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? And then there are professionals who have been in the business for a long time. And they need these lectures to remind themselves of why they went in the business in the first place. Mm -hmm. And to rediscover the inspiration and, I, and give them new ideas. I mean, when I, when I give my lectures, they're three days long, or 11 hours a day. And there are people like John Cleese and Paul Haggis and Akiva Goldsman. There are people sitting out there to this day who have been there three or four times. Wow. It's not as if they don't know what I'm about to say, but they're there because they have a work in progress and they find these lectures stimulating to ask themselves, how does this apply to what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. And they use it to, to gather ideas for a rewrite and everybody in between. And so people of all backgrounds, of all stripes, of all experience, periodically need to hear these fundamental ideas and use them to to draw inspiration from to rethink what they're doing it's it's a, the most stimulating way at some critical point in the process to get a get a jump on on what you're doing so what other people do i don't know i don't care right um i think the reason i've been successful i not to compare myself to these other people in any way, because I don't know them, is that people know that when I'm lecturing, I am telling them the truth. Mm -hmm. I do not pamper people. I use profanity a lot. Um, I am really tough, and I tell them, I say it in these words, you're in over your head. <laughs> And if you want to be a writer, right, what are you going to, if your first script doesn't sell, what are you going to do? Quit? 
Do you realize that the first thing you write will be the worst thing you will ever write? That years from now, you're going to look back on that piece of shit and go, my God, you know? I mean, yeah, and it's not going to work. It's not going to sell. So then what are you going to do? A writer isn't somebody with a story to tell. A writer is somebody with stories to tell. This isn't a hobby. It's an art form and a profession, and you dilettantes should get out now. And I, I literally... Do people I, ever leave? Nope. Nobody ever leaves. <laughs> right. I, I'm not a dilettante. Not right, a dilettante. right. Um, it's, there's a lot of denial. <laughs> right, right, right. And at the end of the day, I think people really appreciate that I know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, that I've taken them into a depth of understanding of these things they never had before, and I did not BS them. Right. Now, is the course a sort of living, breathing thing? If somebody goes to the one in L.A. and then they go to the one in New York, is it essentially going to be the, yeah, the same? it'll be essentially the same. But who knows what film or TV show I might see between L.A. and New York in the next couple of weeks right. that will then find its way... And I'm always discovering things. Mm-hmm. And I must say, I do Sunday, this Sunday, I'm doing a whole long day on long-form television writing. And studying long-form has taught me things about writing and, and character development and character complexity that the cinema never taught me. Because long-form television is character. Do you applaud the fact that now so much of television is being consumed in this binge nature? It's great. It's great for story, right? It's great for them. Yeah. It's great for them as a human being. Right. Because if you sit down and binge, let's say, you know, some people, you know. Ten hours. Exactly. (laughs) Your absorption into the lives of these characters, let's say, for ten straight hours, right, episode after episode, and you're seeing them develop as human beings, and you're seeing them being revealed as human beings. In film, we talk about three-dimensional characters, that's mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Tony Soprano, in my analysis, is a 12-dimensional character. Walter White is a 16-dimensional character. Mm-hmm. If you sit there for 10 hours watching dimension after dimension contradiction after contradiction emerge out of this character you see how he treats his wife one way then he treats his friend another way then he treats his enemy yet another way and in these in these brilliant cast designs of these great long form series pulling out all of these contradictory consistently contradictory dimensions that's what a dimension is mm-hmm. it's a contradict a consistent contradiction within the nature of a character After 10 hours, you have learned more about what it is to be a human being than you have ever (laughs) in your life experienced in a feature film. Mm -hmm. And so that is an enrichment of that person's humanity in ways he... And it's all unconscious. And it's really a new phenomenon, relatively new, right? Because I've talked to a few people in the TV business who say... It's so liberating because we used to have to make somebody likable yes. early on. This is uh, another amazing development in long form. Moral contradiction. A lot of anti-heroes. A lot of anti-heroes, but they're, they're, they're not necessarily heroic. That's right. <laughs> so they're just empty. Right. right. A lot of morally conflicted people. Um, there's nothing heroic about Walter White, but he is courageous. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we wouldn't call him an anti-hero because Bogart was an anti-hero, right? right. right? <laughs> no, Walter White's no Bogart, right, right. right? And so you have these incredibly complex characters with deep moral contradictions and no judgment. That's what's different. Is the the modern day long form audience is not there saying you know Walter really ought to clean up? No, <laughs> they're going. They're fascinated. Yeah. What new monstrous things? You know, um, just recently finished uh, watching Nurse Jackie, mm-hmm. and she is an antihero. 
because inside of the ER, she's the best nurse there. She saves lives repeatedly, and that's heroic, right? But she's also the most self-destructive, hmm. right? It is a it is a an illumination of what it is to be an addict of a kind I have never seen before. And I came away from that series understanding addiction in a way. And I've seen you know famous films from you know Man with the Golden Arm, mm-hmm. you know, and Requiem for a Dream, and marvelous films about addiction never got anything near what Nurse Jackie accomplished. So if you were starting out today, would you be aiming for a career in television rather than film as a writer? Absolutely. Really? I would not be writing a movie. I would be creating what I hope to be the next great TV series. Wow. I mean, when I... Everybody has their lists, but the width of these series, from the Vikings... Which right. is fantastic, right? Right, Game of Thrones, Horace and Pete. I mean, the 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 variety and richness of the of this of long form. Here's another point I think has to be made: the movies cinema has become extremely conservative. It is politically and morally choking on itself to try to appeal to everyone. Not only that, but to pick up social problems, you know, the abuse of children, the abuse of women, um, addictions and whatever, you know, and the corporate corruption, government corruption. It's all about making movies to correct what's wrong with society, not to give us insight into humanity, not to enrich our lives. Right, that we all have to answer that big question: mm-hmm. How should I live my life? No, no, no. To correct the the, the problems in society, right? And then they, these get nominated, they get an award because their hearts are in the right place, and they're and they're really. Out or is it the chicken egg them. phenomenon? Do they do that because they know that's what gets awards? Very likely, very likely. See, the the Revenant had none of that. Right, okay. right, right. <laughs> okay. And that was one that you were very high on. Yeah, it's very what's well, excellent. But film. just to show the yeah. independent thinking that you obviously have, you again grade your films when you review them on your blog, works, doesn't work, or it almost works. And sometimes you're in line with the general consensus. Like, The Big Short as a script works. Academy agrees, got the best adapted screenplay Oscar. But the movie that won the best original screenplay Oscar and best picture, Spotlight, you say it almost works, meaning that it doesn't work. Here was my problem with Spotlight. Yeah. Okay? It's about a huge act repeated acts of immorality perpetrated on children and that the people committing these acts obviously are are criminals the church thinks they're sinners I say they're criminals alright but the screenplay is not about morality the screenplay is about journalistic forensics It's a detective story about how you gather this evidence. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, very nice. I mean, I didn't say it was a bad movie. Mm -hmm. But there was a character or two in the film who are lawyers, who worked for the church, who defended these priests against lawsuits and kept it all hush-hush and under the table. Those guys would be morally conflicted. They're getting child rapists off for a fee. So I thought to myself, if they're going to do a story about these scandals, why not do it from the point of view of somebody, not the priest who did it, not the reporters who invest, but tell it from the point of view of the lawyers who made it happen and worked for all those years, those guys, and and, and what their struggles must have been. But then, of course, people would say, and, and, and they'd have some right, saying, well, that's not what the writer wanted to write. Right. They'd say, go write that story go yourself. Go write that story yourself, right? And, um, and the, what the writer intended to do, the writer did and, and did it very well. And my answer to that is that there's a principle in art known as the intentional fallacy. You do not judge a work of art by what the artist says they intended to do. You judge a work of art by the work of art. When that writer's dead and gone, that work of art has to stand on its own. And 
spotlight, in my judgment, mm -hmm. was mediocre. The material had tremendous potential. The potential was not really developed. They wrote the detective story they wanted to write. It's all very nice, all very sweet, all very good-hearted. Fine. Is it difficult for you, though, to take a position when you know that so many people feel differently? Maybe they're not as qualified to have an opinion, but they're that you're going up against the grain. I mean, you oh, also do said... I worry about <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a, that goes without saying that you do not. But here's another example that yeah. just to put it out there. Citizen Kane, which according to the vast majority of people out there that claim to be knowledgeable about film, the is the greatest, greatest movie, movie right. ever made. And yet Robert McKee has called it, quote, and this, this would not appear on a poster for yes. Citizen Kane, quote, heartless, emotionally empty, cold. So sounds Ma like you're not a fan. manipulative. Manipulative too. I lived in England for many years and I did a lot of British television. And I did a special entitled J'accuse Citizen Kane, <laughs> where I accused Citizen Kane of not being the greatest film of all time. And the, 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 the British Academy of Film and Television Art gave, that, gave me a BAFTA <laughs> for Best Arts Program 1991 for having eviscerated Citizen Kane. <laughs> and after that show came out, right. I'd be walking through London, I'm not joking, or in the underground. People were literally jumping out of doorways going, you, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've always hated that film. I've never understood that film. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That right? is great. Uh, because, because the reputation of Citizen Kane is such that you can't not like it, right? Well... Uh, I found that when I was a kid watching it, I thought, Jesus, th this is the emptiest piece of... And it's also declamatory symbolism and heavy-handed stereotypic characters and whatnot. I thought, you know, what is the, you know, the magic of this? And I compare it to La Strada. Right. Compare it to, you know, Through a Glass Darkly. I mean, compare it to a really great film. But look. Somebody sees my show, J'accuse Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. goes back and still loves Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. even more so because they find something in it that really appeals to them. I have done them a favor. I've, I've caused them to see it again, reaffirm mm -hmm. their deep love of this film, and that's a good thing too. I mean, just, you know, what are we, are we you know, we're human beings. I like it. You don't like it. Right. We argue about it. Right. We rethink it, you know, and hopefully the rethinking of it makes us understand ourselves and the art in front of us better than ever. And so, you you know, if, what difference does it make if I don't like Citizen Kane? What difference does it make if I don't uh, jump up and down about the spotlight or whatever, you know? <laughs> if I cause, who cares? Right. If I cause people to think and 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 understand why they feel the way they feel to prepare them for an even deeper experience the next time they go to the movies so that they're really in touch with what works inside of them and how they I've done them a favor sure. and so I don't care if people object to my objections I mean <laughs> it's all part of trying to make this uh, a more civilized world sure how did you first hear about the film adaptation? And what did you make of the fact that there was a character not only based on you, but possessing your name? I was sitting at the keyboard in my office, writing away, phone rings, and it's um, a, a guy named Ed Sachs and a producer from New York. And he's very chagrined, and he says, ah, this is the most difficult. I mean, this, now that I think about it, of course, it was piece of salesmanship but um, he said this is the most difficult phone call I've ever had to make uh, there's this crazy writer it's Charlie Kaufman he's written the screenplay he's, he's made you a character in it he has freely stolen from your lectures and from your <laughs> book without permission we don't know what to do and I said well send me the script so I read it and I saw what he was trying to do and um, he needed an antagonist. He needed somebody for his um, character, his protagonist, to rub up against somebody who wasn't just Hollywood, but also represented writing and art and of a, what he thought would be a conservative kind. 
and he, he fancies himself as a free-thinking avant-gardist, you know. And what, but I, I know Charlie very well, and I know what Charlie's ambition is to make the commercial art movie. <laughs> Okay, right. <laughs> which, as much as he wished it was, Anomalisa was not. Unfortunately, right. but but that's Charlie's ambition right. to be rich and an artist, <laughs> and uh, which is you know fine. Did he, he ever take the course? He says he didn't, but we have a re- registration card for one Charles Kaufman <laughs> taking the uh, the course with a Writers Guild discount about three years before the film came out. Wow. So at any rate, so I saw what he was after and. Um, I called uh, Saxon and I said, um, I'm, I, I want to have fun with this. I, I make fun of myself all the time, but I need three things. A redeeming scene, control of the casting for me, and a new third act because I can't be a character in a bad movie. <laughs> and your act three sucks. <laughs> and so I said, we need meetings. Right. And so I sit down with Spike and Charlie and I gave them notes and they worked out. Uh, they were receptive? Very. They hmm. were great to work with. Wow. Because they knew they had trouble. Anyways, so it all became a delightful experience. And great. you enjoyed the fi- the finished product? Absolutely. They figured it out and they showed me a Act 3 that worked. I said, yes, yes, this is, a, is as good as it was going to get. But you're going to realize that there's going to be a parting of the sea here. I said, at one point in this film, half the audience is going with it and half is going against it when... Susan Orleans, when Meryl Streep says, we're going to have to kill him, <laughs> half the audience will go, wow, that's great, and the other half going, what? <laughs> right? But you're not going to have 100% of the audience on your side in Act 3, but you're going to have half of them, right. and that's just how it works. So. Ever since adaptation, people have associated you with hatred of voiceover narration, but I think it's a little more nuanced. <laughs> what is your actual position on voiceover narration? I don't like telling narration. I think narration as a substitute for dramatization is wimpy writing, right? On the other hand, counterpoint narration that such as Woody Allen, such as Itumama Tambien in many films, counterpoint narration where the narrator adds qualities, insights, laughs, whatever, that if you took the narration out of the film, it would still work perfectly well. But the counterpoint enriches it. Counterpointing narration is a wonderful technique, and I applaud it. Telling narration as a substitute for dramatization, I do not applaud. But I'm not in, you know, mad, insane about this. A little, you know, an opening in a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away is narration, telling narration to set up a movie. I, you know, fine, I don't care. <laughs> Are there any things that all great writers or all bad writers share in common? I don't know. There's a lot of reasons for writing badly. One, you just don't have any talent, mm-hmm. right? That's not their fault. There are writers with a, a, a modest amount of talent, they have enough talent, who lie. They just tell truth because they think this is the sentimental crap that the audience wants or they cliches, they just recycle other people's stuff because that's what producers are wanting to buy, what looks like stuff they've already seen. And so bad writing happens for a lot of reasons. But we talked about this earlier, and I think that one thing that all good writers have, as I said, is that when they're writing, they become the best possible person they're capable of. Mm-hmm. And that they're writing to express the truth as they deeply believe in it, and they are full of doubts. They question everything. They they and um, and they improvise constantly. They and they have high standards. They don't accept mediocrity in themselves. But but that's all part of the truth. I mean, that's having high standards is a product of of passionately believing that above all else. This has to really be the truth. And therefore, you, you measure yourself against the greatest of writers. True or false? A bad movie can come from a good script, but a good movie cannot come from a bad script. Um, that's true. I think it was Kurosawa who said that a great master can take a good screenplay and make a great film. 
but a, a master cannot take a bad screenplay and make it even into a good film, let alone a great film. Mm -hmm. And that at the heart of everything is a script, is a story, is characters and events. That's the heart and soul of it. And if that isn't at least good, then it, it's just not going to work, no matter who's directing. I mean, look, Alfred Hitchcock is worshipped as one of the gods of, right? He never wrote anything. He couldn't write. He only directed. What's the difference between Vertigo and Family Plot? The master made them both. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's the writing. And so you give Hitchcock an, you know, a great screenplay like Vertigo, and he makes a masterpiece. Give him a mediocre screenplay, he makes a mediocre film. Is a film that is directed by its writer usually a better film? Not necessarily. You would hope. Mm -hmm. But those two talents, the talent to write is an original talent. You start with nothing but a blank page and tradition. You create a world, populate it with characters, tell the story out of those characters' lives. That is the only act of genuine originality in the making of a film. After that, everyone is an interpretive artist. Directing is an interpretive art form quite different than writing. Mm -hmm. It's an extension of writing, but often it's the case that a director makes a better interpretation of a screenplay than the writer does. Not always, but often. And so, you, you know, Ingmar Bergman, in my mind, was a great author. He wrote and directed his own right, okay? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he's not the greatest director who ever lived. Stanley Kubrick is. Oh, that's interesting. Okay? Yeah. And so, Ingmar Bergman films are great, but so is Barry Lyndon, so is, <laughs> well, I mean, so that, that, that kind of, the, the magic of all of these artists, not to mention the actors and the editors and the designers and the musicians, all of that coming together is such a serendipity that you can't say one thing for sure, if, is it definite, if you do this, that, 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 you're gonna end up with success. In the course of your career, script writing software has become widely available and used. Yeah. Has that impacted the quality of scripts? No, of course not. Not at all. And not that I know of. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, formatting software is very useful, mm -hmm. right? Final Draft is great, okay? I mean, you know, hit a key and right there and you don't have to worry about the margins and the you know, tab stops and character names and gets typed in right there for right. you and all that stuff. Uh, all that's very useful is... But, but what you're talking about is um, is software that tells you how to write a story. That stuff is nonsense. nonsense. Right. In your writing and in the advice that you give to others about their writing, do you feel that outlines are valuable? Is it better to know where you want a story to end at the beginning or to find that out along the way? Look, everybody works a different way. I, I suggest to writers that they move from inspiration to step outline and revisions to treatment, and by my definition, a treatment is two to three hundred pages of present tense prose and description without dialogue, text and subtext. They move from screenplay to treatment and revision, and from there to screenplay and revision. That inside out method is the way, it's nothing new for screenwriting, this is the way novels, the way plays have been written for centuries. On the other hand, there are people who just write off the top of their head. And somehow at the end of the day, their work is of real high quality mm -hmm. and everybody in between. And so I can't tell anybody how they should. I just, that the inside out method of idea to screenplay and revision, outline and revision, treatment and revision, screenplay and revision, seems to produce the best work for most writers in the shortest time. Whereas writing dialogue in search of scenes, writing scenes in search of story, can go on for years <laughs> until you realize it was never a good idea in the first place. <laughs> is writer's block a real thing or is it an imagined thing? Sure, it's a real thing. Is there a way to get past it? My, uh, my best advice is research. That your talent didn't evaporate. You have just simply drained your head of everything you know that's useful to the screenplay and these characters. And the reason you're blocked is because you don't have anything left to say. You've emptied out 
everything that you know. And so go to the library, go pull books and research in whatever way, you know, common sense tells you that if I studied this, I would know more about these characters in mm-hmm. this part of the world and whatever. And as you do the research, your, um, your, your muscle, your mental creativity will start to flex again and you will be back to writing. That's the best advice I have, but it doesn't always work. The second best advice is to get Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. That is the best book ever written on overcoming creative block. Wow. I will definitely be doing that. And by the way, speaking of best, in your view, what is the best screenplay that you have read? And who is the best screenwriter who's out there? See, those kinds of questions, uh, you know, my number one choice of this and that and read whatever, I always resist because they just pigeonhole you and people will say, he thinks that's, you know, good. And so now I don't. But, but you're a, you're have, a friend have, of William Goldman. Is that somebody you hold on a very high pedestal? Yes. You know, I think he's the greatest writer of dialogue in the history of the movies. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is a, a magnificent piece of work. And you also like John Howard Lawson, right? But John Howard Lawson gave me a lot of insight into writing, but he wrote for playwrights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what his insights into playwriting are certainly applicable to screenwriting. But there are so many wonderful films. Though I was just talking uh, a little while ago with somebody about with the same sort of thing. You know, what's your favorite? And um, I'm fishing around in my head, and you know, I think Ingmar Bergman, as I said, is mm-hmm. the greatest screenwriter who ever lived. But if I had to, you know, watch a, a film tomorrow for the umpteenth time, it'd be Groundhog Day. It's a great, it's fabulous script. Mm-hmm. But there are so many. You know, you, you can't compare the greatest of action to the greatest of comedy right. to the greatest of drama. Those are all apples and oranges comparisons. And so when you say something is the greatest, you know, you really have to narrow the category down to, you know, the, the greatest family drama ever <laughs> is Lear. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, we get a little finite. Yeah. Know, so, uh, and a lot of good, you know, and then there's ordinary people alongside Lear. You really? know what I mean? So... We are so fortunate in this world to have so much great work that allows us to live so deeply in a fictional way so that we can live even more deeply in a factual way in our own lives. We are so lucky in that way that I can't single anything out except to say that the art of story makes us civilized makes life worth living. Final question is this. What percentage of people who attend your seminars will ever be paid as much for something they've written as they pay to attend the seminar? (laughs) (laughs) And what despite the odds, which I'll leave to you to theorize about, what despite those odds makes it worth pursuing? Well, first of all, the odds. The odds are if I have 200 people in a lecture and two of them actually end up writing something of quality for which they get a fair check, that'll be an exceptional class. The odds are at least 100 to 1. In reality, in the biggest picture of all, because a lot of people don't come to my leg, whatever, um, it's probably more like 1,000 to 1. For every 1,000 novels that are attempted, every 1,000 plays, every 1,000 screenplays, one is of quality. That's the odds, more or less. Because, you know, God just did not give out that much talent. (laughs) And whether or not they make money, making that a criterion for judgment is a, a great mistake. A lot of bad writing, and I mean really insultingly bad writing, makes a lot of money. What every writer has to understand is that you have to find the satisfaction in the work itself. The writing has to be what's important. The struggle to create something of real quality, to test yourself as a human being, to test your craft. The writing is really the only thing that will give you satisfaction. If you make money, fine, that just makes it possible to move on. If you don't make money, you go find a shit job somewhere so that you can pay the rent and keep writing. (laughs) The writing is all that matters. 
And um, I mean, there's a lot of people who make a lot of money writing and they are not happy souls <laughs> because they know in their heart of hearts they made money on something that's not really very good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you want to make money, you know, you can open up some e-commerce thing. <laughs> I mean, that's really, seriously, right. you know, you make more money doing that than you'd ever make writing. And so to write for money is just a, I mean, that's really so narrow-minded and it's not going to work. If you don't love it, you know, don't do it. Right. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate the opportunity to pick your brain. It was great. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.